the community services crisis rises from a simmer to a boil. This week, we got details about how Boyle Street will operate for the next year. Plus, the police tell us that everyone thinks they're doing great. Hooray! Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 235. Mac, in our previous episode, we railed on City Council a little bit about the Blatchford Gates station and the idea that they wouldn't open a transit line. And my favorite thing that happens when we release an episode is someone comes at me for what I said at the episode. And thankfully, the Blatchford community kindly came at me a little bit about that. They tweeted, hey, you know, I don't think this is the right take. So I figured... It's time to learn what the correct take is. So, Mac, I went out on a field trip this week. Ooh, field trips are such fun. Okay, so you went out to Blatchford to see this shiny, gleaming new station? There's two things that I immediately noticed. Uh, I haven't been to Blatchford in a while because, you know, it's nothing, right? It's a construction zone with only a few homes. Uh, The first thing I noticed is that the shiny, gleaming new station in the distance? Yes. That's the new Nate station, right? So the new Nate station not only serves all of the community of Blatchford right now, it is still decently far away. It is, if we're talking about building transit in advance of development, which both you and I agree is the correct way to do it, the Nate station is already in advance of the Blatchford development. Okay. Blatchford Gate Station, if you want to hike over a bunch of thorny weeds, get ticks all over your body, (laughs) and then be completely exhausted and out of breath, That's the station you'd go to. After sitting in the neighborhood and seeing the gorgeous space that is very walkable, very nice, I recommend you contact your realtor about buying there. You know, it's... It is definitely not unreasonable for city council to leave that station closed for a year or two. They have a really awesome playground in Blatchford there that we've gone to a couple of times. It's sort of surrounded by nothing, or at least it it was the last time we were there. I'm not sure if it's much different now. Where in relation to the Aviation Museum, that airport road where the superstore is, where people would probably come into the community, where in relation to that is Blatchford Gate Station? Blatchford Gate is basically... As far across. So when you enter Blatchford from, you know, the superstore entrance, that roadway, you can see on your right, there's the fancy playground and then there's the new Nate station by Nate. And then if you go sort of like further cardinally north across that big field, you can see the huge mound of earth that they used Mm. for sound abatement in the past. That's off near it. It is it is quite a distance. It is not a station that you'd want to use. Kudos to the Blatchford community for flagging this. I can't be everywhere at once, but I did appreciate their free electric vehicle charging while I was there checking out their community. Very handy. Well, it's good on you to go and uh, listen to those faithful listeners who steered you in a different direction and to check it out. Real journalism right here. Field reporting. And of course, to pay for that field reporting, Mac, we've got to read an ad from our sponsor this week. That's right. Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton, and this episode is brought to you by Edmonton Startup Week. It returns October 10th to 14th. It's five days of workshops, socials, and events that build momentum and opportunity around Edmonton's unique entrepreneurial identity, startup community, and culture of innovation. The flagship event of Startup Week, of course, is Launch Party. Uh, You can get your tickets for that now. Get connected to all of the other events that are happening throughout the week. You can go onto the website, which is edmontonstartupweek.com, and build your handy schedule. Lots of things to check out. October 10th to 14th, Edmonton Startup Week. One more thing I'll say on Blatchford before we go, because, you know, I was enamored with the place. 
I've long since said that we don't need a road to everywhere in Edmonton. And getting away from that is a great thing. There is one street in Blatchford right now where there's lane access to the back garages, but all of the buildings face out onto a pedestrian promenade with like little sort of like front garden planters in front of the buildings. Yeah. Mac, when we were there, we were walking by, we saw people on their front steps talking to us as they walk past, talking to their neighbors. If we're talking about eliminating social isolation, ironically, Blatchford is kind of socially isolating in its own little <laughs> quarantine section. But within the community, Mac, I got to say, that's going to be a very gorgeous place to live when it's done. Uh, so kudos. We, we rag on Blatchford because it's behind schedule and, you know, maybe a little bit too expensive for the market right now. But Mac, it's going to be such a gorgeous place. One of those things where the, the plan and the principles behind it will take some time to come to fruition. But maybe if we can stick with it, we'll get there. Yeah, we'd love for Blatchford to stick to the design. And Mac, we talked about this last week. Design week is coming up in the city of Edmonton. And our guest last week had some free swag to give away in passes to design week. And all you had to do was answer some trivia questions. We've tabulated the results. We've gotten all our responses in. And Mac, we have a winner. We do. We have Stephanie Ma submitted... Uh, an answer for each of the three trivia questions and got two of the three correct. And remember, you only needed to get one uh, in order to win. So congratulations to Stephanie. Uh, yeah, we'll be reaching out via email to let you know how you can claim your prize. Uh, for the rest of our dear listeners, while we had Danielle here last week, we got her to record the correct answers. So without further ado, here were the correct answers to the questions. So for the first question, who are the three runners-up to the Art Gallery of Alberta design competition? It was Arthur Erickson, Nick Melenkintroff from Vancouver, in combination with Dub Architects. The other was Alsop and Partners, and the third was Zaha Hadid, which if you know anything about any of those architects, you might be a bit sad. <laughs> Just listening to these answers, it reminds me of like when Mac and I talk about the minutia of the zoning bylaw, how inaccessible it is to people if outside not familiar of the fandom. It. Yeah. Yes. So my personal favorite would have been Zaha Hadid. And if you Google any of her architecture, it's pretty amazing. And if you kind of envision what that may have looked like in a, a northern region, it would have been great. Um, okay, so for the next two, uh, what two design collectives put Edmonton on the map in the 1990s? The answers are Pure Design and Hot House. So they're industrial design collectives, so they have range from housewares to furniture, all that kind of stuff. Um, some of the founding members are still in Edmonton. And which famous Canadian architect has an early career project just west of Edmonton? The answer is Arthur Erickson. And if you're interested in Arthur Erickson, we have a documentary being premiered uh, at Design Week. It's the Arthur Erickson Dyed House doc, and you can get tickets online. Okay, great. So people will be going to Design Week. They'll be learning all about design. There was a train line in Edmonton, Mac, that had a bad design, um, or maybe You'd argue that the design was good, but the implementation of the design was bad. There were cracked pillars. This is the <sighs> joke that I'm trying to get at here. It's the Valley Line LRT. I, like most Edmontonians, want to know what went wrong here and how we can prevent it in the future. Council seems to want to know that as well. And Mac, it sounds like we're never going to get <laughs> to know that. That's right. At audit committee last week, this item came up. The city auditor did an audit of the delivery of this P3 line, so the Valley Line 
Southeast LRTP3. But what they audited is basically everything you don't want them to audit. So they have this one slide in the presentation has two columns. One says in scope and one says out of scope. And it might as well have said, nobody cares about this. Everybody cares about that stuff. So the in scope was the procurement process. Was it open and fair? The auditor found it was. Was the project agreement design clear enough? Did it allocate risks? Did it set out requirements? They found that it did. And then the third thing that was in scope was this project agreement management. So is the city holding them accountable for achieving cost-effective service delivery expectations in compliance with that agreement? And I think they found that that is the case. And then out of scope is whether or not this should have been a P3 at all. (laughs) Anything about the design, the concepts, the route plans, all of that technical components of the project's design and construction. So I think that would be where your pillars are. And then also work performed by the private partners, including their project management processes. So to find out why those pillars cracked, what went wrong that led to that, why the project is so far behind, none of that was in scope for this audit. So it makes you wonder sort of what was the point of doing that audit, especially given that I don't know if you have the ability that I have to read the room. But I like to think I'm able to read a room that I'm in. Sure. And if I was an auditor and I was coming into a room and saying, we've audited and determined that the Valley Line LRT project had no auditable flaws whatsoever, I might stop and say, hey, you know what? (laughs) This is not the ideal presentation to be making to this city council. And indeed, at least some members of council asked about this. Councillor Aaron Rutherford said she was imagining herself as an Edmontonian, seeing this report and seeing, you know, thinking about the perceptions of the line, the quality issues that have come up. And she was very diplomatic about it. She's like, I just find myself wondering, is there another conversation that needs to be had? Uh, (laughs) Which is a pretty delicate way of putting, you know, what you pointed out here, which is that this audit doesn't really tell us anything we want to find out about. Uh, In response to Council Rutherford's musings, it was either the city auditor, some from the office there from administration said, you know, that risks always materialize on these big projects, no matter what you do. It's that the, the the structure of this project being a P3 really limits the ability of administration to do much about it. And that the way to deal with this and sort of the reputational risks that come along with those quality issues is through communications. Yeah, one of the things that uh, administration had said is, you know, all of these things were out of scope because uh, they do not have the legal authority to audit a private company, which, you know, in some cases makes sense, of course. But I found it very interesting that Mayor Sohi took a pretty hard line against that essentially saying, I I hear what you're saying, but I want to know the answers to these questions. I want to know what happened to the pillars. I want to know what happened to the corroded cables. And if the city can't provide this, I'll be asking the province to open this up. That was a pretty aggressive stance from a mayor who is generally very like diplomatic and measured and collaborative. Somebody who can maybe read the room and see that people are upset about this and want to know the answers. I think it's really material, too, with the Valley Line West construction happening. I actually drove by West Edmonton Mall and 87th Avenue today. I haven't been over there in ages. And there's pillars all the way along. I think two things, Troy, every time I see these LRT pillars. Number one, I thought we were building low floor 
LRT. <laughs> None of our low floor lines seem very low floor once you get outside downtown. So anyway, that's my pet peeve about these new lines. And then the second thing is, yeah, how do we know that there's not going to be additional cracks or, or quality issues with this line? Can we learn from that first instance? I mean, the uh, the private company Marigold, who's working on the west leg of the uh, uh, Valley Line, has said they are mindful of all of those issues and are trying to take them into account. But pretty hard if we don't get into the detail to know whether or not we've fixed things. When you went over near 170th Street, was the crane still up? Yeah, the big orange. It's a pretty impressive operation, I have to say. I mirrored your thoughts about low floor because, you know, trains, cranes, these are all very cool things that yeah. gets my inner three-year-old going. Me too. But like that crane, you know, with prefabricated concrete sections being basically lifted up and snaked on and then the crane moves over very cool operation but huge right oh yeah none of that seemed like this is small scale neighborhood lrt this felt like a mega project to me which it is yeah i mean that intersection at 170th street and 87th avenue was already atrocious as a pedestrian (laughs) right like it was way too many lanes of traffic and all of that and I, i kind of get that it's not going to get made much better. And this, you know, going over is probably better than trying to do it at grade. But you just think about all the people that live around there, the hospital, you know, all the other, you know, potential stops along the way. And uh, and, and having these lines go up over the ground like that just really reduces the accessibility of it and, and doesn't really, you know, match the expectations I have in my head, at least around what low floor looks like. At least for now, it's seeming like the Marigold implementation of Valley Line West is doing better than Valley Line Southeast. If it's not, though, we also won't know for the same reason. Valley Line West is another P3 with a different conglomerate of P3 contractors, but it still has all the same problems that we've seen on Valley Line Southeast and that we don't seem to be endeavoring to solve quite yet. Of course, Boyle Street, we've highlighted they've been having some problems with their space, namely not being in it anymore as of September 30th. But we learned this week that they have found... Not a new space, but several new spaces to continue operating some of their services. I think when we talked about this previously, you and I mused that the simple, correct thing to do here would be to just work out a way for them to stay in the existing space for another year. That is not going to happen. What is happening is they've now got four locations for their various services. So Bissell East at 105th Avenue and 96th Street is where the bulk of their services will go. That's really interesting to me because it's not like Bissell has a bunch of empty space and capacity to accommodate this. So it's a bit of a lift from that agency to help out. The Four Directions Financial and Higher Good will be out of temporary trailers on the location of the new King Thunderbird Center. So that's 101st Street and 107th A Avenue. And that's the like sort of like resume building, help you get a job services, right? And Four Directions Financial is a collaboration with ATB Financial. So some banking services for folks who are underbanked. Yes. Sure. And then two community spaces, a smaller one at CoLab, which is interesting given that CoLab has basically been in the news for having to shut down due to financial pressures. Um, And another one in the Mercer warehouse on the third floor, which is where Work Nicer, um, the co-working space, has taken over that space and then closed it for construction. And it hasn't yet reopened to its members, actually. So that one's really interesting to me. That space is the most unlike the others, right? You might think, oh, 
this financial services one is a, a partnership with ATB. Maybe they could just open up one of the ATB branches to this community. And I understand why there might be maybe staff at ATB who are uncomfortable with that, but equally there might be clients who don't want to go or don't feel welcome in a place like that. The Mercer warehouse is a bit different, right? I mean, you've got a pretty fancy cocktail bar on the main levels, new restaurant that's pretty fancy. You know, you got offices of tech people. I wonder how the how it welcomed those folks will feel in that space. And yet, I think it's awesome that um, Alex and the team at Work Nicer and presumably, you know, Devin Pope and the, the landlords of the building have stepped forward to help Boyle Street, you know, with this transition. I got to say, the Mercer Warehouse, of course, was very interesting to me because, like you said, it's got these fancy spaces. And you know, it's a former old warehouse that I think has been gentrified, right? Like, I think that's a great example of it. It was something that was very old, run down, and has given been given a new lease on life. Yeah. But in a sort of like expensive, you come out there from the suburbs. I'm sure the Mercer Warehouse is a favorite thing of people living in Ellerslie and Windermere driving down to 104th Street for a night out after the game. And I thought this was fascinating because there's a lot of conversation about nimbyism, about integrating services in different communities and this from the teams there is a very money where your mouth is situation they have a space they could absolutely lock the front doors and keep people out of the buildings and no one would bat an eye but this space has been opened up and we'll see how it goes but i i'm really heartened by all the teams involved stepping up like you said to do this the other space that was interesting was Colab, and you found some response from them about the impact on their organization. Yeah, so like you said, Colab has been in the news because <laughs> they're on the brink of closure, right? They're having significant financial issues. And they had posted sort of an AMA, sort of an update on Reddit. And one of the responses was really fascinating to me because Colab had said that no contract has been signed with Boyle Street quite yet, but their use of the space will help augmented our finances a bit. Mm. And I thought that was really fascinating because our best understanding of the issue is that the OEG was offering Boyle Street a $1 a month lease to continue in the space. And that was financially non-viable for Boyle Street in the words of some other part of the agreement that maybe they're not telling us which exactly the agreement of the one dollar a month lease was financially unsustainable for boyle street so there must be some other conditions but this was really fascinating to me because one dollar a month does not help collapse finances no so boyle street is clearly paying collab more than that paying perhaps a market rate or lower than market or whatever it may be for use of that space So it makes me wonder what exactly these conditions that are private that we're never going to hear about, how arduous could they be that it is a better idea for Boyle to fracture their services all across the city, put strain on, like you said, Bissell, who doesn't have an embarrassment of riches to offer up, put strain on all these community organizations and still pay more money out of pocket. What was so arduous about these lease conditions that this is the best path forward? I think like the Valley Line Southeast, we're probably never going to know. But something does smell a little rank here. And, you know, it's the people that Boyle Street serves that are going to pay for it, which we've talked about before. So we've heard already from Jim Gurnett with the Edmonton Coalition on Housing and Homelessness that People are feeling frustrated. You know, they're hearing that some of the clients are confused about what's happening and where to go and 
you know, it's yet another blow to a community that is maybe underserved in our community. Boyle Street has said they will have staff on site at their current location next week, outside directing people and helping them get to the services that they need. And thankfully, you know, it's not too cold out yet. So, uh, you know, it's possible for all of that to happen. And it seems like they're on top of it and, and we'll be able to make the transition as smooth as can be, given that they've got four new locations here. But it's really not ideal. I did catch uh, Elliot Tanti's interview. He's with Boyle Street Community Services on CBC Radio. And one of the questions was about permits and whether they're allowed to use these spaces for these various uses, which I thought was kind of uh, amusing because we know, of course, how difficult it's been to get permission to move ahead with their new space. And, you know, his answer was essentially, oh, we're working closely with our city partners and it'll take a little bit of time, but we'll get all that stuff sorted out. And it just seemed like, how come it was so difficult to get a brand new purpose-built facility approved for use, and yet somehow we're able to move into these other four spaces pretty quickly? Granted, you know, Bissell already is the appropriate you know, uses and everything like that. But some of the others or the temporary trailers, that's a bit interesting that they've been able to do that. And he said, that's why it's taken a little bit of time since we first learned that um, they were going to have to move out of their existing location for them to have a plan. Well, switching gears quickly, the police is a longstanding topic on Speaking Municipally. We like to follow the goings-ons of the police commission and the Edmonton Police Service as they request more and more money. We don't ever highlight when they request less because it hasn't yet happened. One of the underpinnings of all of this is, is our value for our dollar being met? Are we getting a good value for all these investments that we're putting into the police service? And the Edmonton Police Commission, who they answered the question for us this week, saying that a survey that they did says everyone thinks the police is doing great. They've done their annual perception survey. This is the survey you might recall during the recent discussion about uh, the funding formula. This is the survey they pointed to as sort of key evidence for them meeting the expectations of Edmontonians and delivering on the value of that funding formula money, right? So it's all going to come down to this perception survey. And as you say, we got the results. They surveyed just over 1,700 Edmontonians and 57% of them said they were satisfied with the police service and feel they're doing a good job, which is up from just 51% last year. It wasn't all rosy though. About 65% of people said they feel that crime is increasing. It was only 47% last year. And 66% said they don't feel safe taking transit alone after dark. Mac, I have a question for about 15% of these respondents. (laughs) Why is it that if you don't feel safe and you think crime is increasing, that you think the police is doing a better job than they were previously doing? It is it is kind of questionable, isn't it, that that percentage for how good of job they're doing could be so much higher than crime is going up. I don't feel safe on transit. Uh, I'm not sure what some of the other questions were, but I would imagine that, uh, you know, that that overall question stands alone to some extent. I don't know, Mac. I feel like if it was the case that police had a higher approval rating than, for example, the premier, that there might have been more fanfare or more delving into exactly why people felt this way and the successes that led to this, rather than just a reporting of a number. We should say this survey was conducted in May and June of this year. So before that funding formula discussion took place, but at the time when there was a lot of discussion about crime and how unsafe people felt, the need to hire additional security for events and and things like that as we were starting to enter into that summer festival season. So there's maybe a bit of timeliness to the results here. 
they they were questioned the police commission about how reflective of the community they think these results are and you know they said they think it's relatively reflective but there's more work to be done and that they're treating this as you know another data point to use to try and improve the situation in Edmonton i think if they can keep this perception survey relatively consistent year to year you know it's not entirely useless. I think there's some value, but it's got to be used in conjunction with a whole bunch of other metrics and data, right? We have actual numbers about crimes, actual financial numbers, all of those kinds of things should come together to help us, you know, evaluate the performance and the sort of return on our investment. I think back to the Office of Traffic Safety in, you know, the past decade or so, before they were the Vision Zero team. And one of the things that I constantly criticized is one of the marquee achievements, how the Office of Traffic Safety, you know, sold themselves to council was this perceptions on traffic safety survey that they issued to the Edmonton community. Yeah. This was, you know, how how safe do you feel while driving? How safe do you feel in your communities? These sorts of questions. But it always had the one question of, are you better at driving than the average driver. (laughs) And the majority of Edmontonians said yes. Of course. This is what always flashes back to my mind in these perception surveys is the person answering this cannot answer in a way that is truly meaningful from a scientific perspective, right? They are perception surveys. And perceptions are certainly important. But if we're assessing the efficacy of funding, you know, the largest organization to lower crime in a city, perceptions are not necessarily what we need to be measuring here. Right. And of course, the perception of the OSBA, the Old Strathcona Business Association, has been that crime has been increasing within their BIA. And the association has been asking for things like increased police presence, outreach street teams, and other grants and services, ostensibly to just help with broken windows, break-ins, and an increase in crime in Old Strathcona. Yeah, this is a letter campaign that they've launched to urge the city and the province's, uh, what is it called, Public Safety and Community Response Task Force to not forget about Old Strathcona, uh, is sort of the way that I read this, right? We've seen and heard lots about crime and safety downtown and lots about crime and safety along, say, the LRT line or at transit centers, and not so much about you know, those issues in other parts of the city. The OSBA here is saying that, you know, it's not just an issue downtown. There's about 600 businesses in their district. And, you know, they're also seeing some of those same problems an uptick in vandalism and other things, as you say, um, that we're seeing in other parts of the city. And so, you know, they think it's probably a good thing to see some advocacy from another group of businesses to sort of push back on the idea that all of the problems are just downtown. Yeah. And one of the things that really um, solidified this Old Strathcona item to me this week is just this week, uh, Bike Edmonton uh, announced that their uh, south side location had a window smashed and a bike stolen out from it. And the police had actually recovered the bicycle, which is shocking to me. Maybe, in fact, that police perception survey is accurate. Maybe there's been a a startling increase there. Uh, Bike Edmonton was saying that, you know, this is going to cost us either in replacing the window or increased insurance premiums. And this is the problem that a lot of old Strathcona businesses are facing and across the city. But broken windows is one thing that is like, you're never going to find who is responsible for breaking a window, right? There's never going to be a charge laid for that. It's just something that happens and businesses have to pay for it, either through insurance costs or paying for the window. In this high interest environment, in 
a COVID recovery environment, that can be a pretty big stressor to small businesses. And I've heard from a lot of small business owners that just petty vandalism, petty theft has been a huge stressor. Yeah, one of the things they're talking about is uh, just more police visibility presence on the street to maybe help deter some of that. The other thing they mentioned is they do have a grant, actually, for window repair. It's $160,000 grant, um, but they've only spent about 10000 of it, interestingly, because the businesses are finding that it's not just windows. They need support to fix the vandalism of other things that fall outside the scope of that grant, which is interesting to me. Um, it would seem that that kind of a program would help some of the issues you're talking about, you know, the business either having to pay out of pocket or having to face increased uh, insurance. And so if we could tailor those programs or tweak those programs to, to make that possible, that would be good. Well, after we repair our front window, we can look out and see the October 16th date trudging closer and closer to us. Mac, I really didn't think that the zoning bylaw renewal, we had talked with then city employee Ann Stevenson about this several years ago. We had Livia Ballone talk about this on the podcast before. It's a pretty boring topic. It's pretty dull overall. Uh, our listeners and we might enjoy it, but let's be real about what it is. I did not expect zoning bylaw renewal to be the marquee item of this term and driving citywide vigor and several, several op-eds dueling back and forth in post-media papers. But Mac, that's where we are. As we trudge further forward to this October 16th date, which will certainly be at least a day-long public hearing, probably one of those several-day multi-hundred speaker items, we are getting dangerously close, I feel, to um, the facts don't matter camp on this. I, I feel like there's a lot of division sewing up in the same way that we saw the 15-minute communities conspiracies start to crop up. I think it sort of makes sense that this is where we are, right? From the 30,000-foot view of the city plan, really high level, it's too expensive to keep sprawling, we've got to be more dense, we've got to have better transportation options and let people make different choices. Like the zoning by the renewal, district planning, these kinds of things are what bring that plan to life. You and I and, uh, you know, others at Taproot have been aware of its significance for years, which is why we talked to Anne way back when we did about this thing coming up. But it's now starting to, I think, come and be real for a large number of Edmontonians. I agree that it's unfortunate that some of the uh, information and the entry point into that conversation is just about dueling op-eds because I don't think those are grounded in fact or reality so much as opinion obviously, given that it's an op-ed. But, you know, it is an opportunity for Edmontonians to learn more about how the city works. Even if, you know, they're not going to come at it at this stage of the game and, and have a huge impact on the zoning bylaw itself and, and what's going to change, you know, we're probably too far along for dramatic changes to what that plan and what that bylaw will look like. It is an opportunity to you know, try and bring more people along, get them engaged, get them aware, and sort of highlight where these things have a real impact on your day-to-day. -day. And I hope that's what we can achieve as we get closer to October 16th, is sort of to raise the collective awareness and understanding about what even zoning is when we talk about zoning, we hear about zoning. I'm not one to, you know, feel sorry for city councillors because they made their bed, they got into politics, you reap what you sow. But I do honestly feel a little bit bad for the members of our city council because hot take alert, 
I don't think the zoning bylaw is going to change materially from its draft state to yeah. when it will get approved on October 16th. I don't I think there's agree. a risk of it not getting approved. I agree with that. And the primary reason is because those that are showing up in opposition, while certainly they may have a case to be made, certainly there may be a case that certain neighborhood contexts don't want eight-story buildings within them, sure. But that's a case to be made at district planning, right? The opponents to the zoning bylaw typically are only opposing either district planning, which is the next step, or opposing the idea that we should have any density in the city, which city council has already soundly rejected through the city plan. So there's not really any material opposition to the zoning bylaw, the text itself, that is being brought forward in a way that I think is convincing to city council. What do you think about their concern that perhaps this zoning bylaw gives too much opportunity to developers without enough in return for the city or for communities? Well, I think it's bunk. But uh, I mean, the city and city council have identified that they need better tools to control and guide development within the city. So if city council and city administration have said, these are the tools that we need to better guide development in the city, to argue against those tools saying, no, you should go play with your old tools because I think they better allow you to guide development in the city? I mean, I think there's a disconnect there that doesn't quite make sense. Do you think it's fair to say there's pretty much nothing that you can do in the new zoning bylaw that you can't do in the old one? It's just more difficult. For sure. And everything that the new zoning bylaw permits, the old zoning bylaw could have permitted. Uh, of course, you know, there may be some rezoning that could have occurred. But everything that sort of quote unquote, the other side, the better infill.ca organization, everything they fear, all the eight story buildings on any lots could certainly have occurred in our existing zoning bylaw through rezoning. And indeed, district planning as a process will require rezoning to allow such a thing to occur. So nothing really is changing other than there will be a mass, not up zoning, but like side rezoning rezoning across the city to the nearest applicable zone so the permitted uses will change slightly yes it may be a meter here a meter there but instead of doing that on a property by property case by case basis this is to say like we're going to update the whole city zoning to reflect what we believe needs to be the direction as according to city plan yeah, and indeed, there's already precedent for this. We've talked with Livia Ballone that RF3 zoning in areas like Ritchie and Hazeldean and uh, Queen Alex, this is a mass rezoning that occurred, um, and the sky didn't quite fall. Right. And this is why I feel a little bit bad for Edmonton City Council, simply because I think Tim Cartmel has said it best, because I would never consider Tim Cartmel to be the bastion of progressive urban development. Yes. But he's been, you know, supportive of the zoning bylaw, specifically because better tools are better for city councillors. And he has gone on the record with his consternation of he's tried for years to talk about zoning, to engage with his communities. And he hasn't found a way that resonates with people, that doesn't cause extreme panic in those that fear their property changes, and that communicates to people the realities of what they're doing because it is quite dull. And city council is going to be in a tough position where they're going to hear a lot of opposition at city council for this, and they're going to have to discount that opposition because most of it is going to be irrelevant to the text that they're passing. And they're going to have the very difficult communications exercise of saying, I hear your concerns, but your concerns are wrong at this point in time. And Or just, just I hear your concerns. Thank you for engaging in this process. 
here's why I'm making the decision I'm making. I don't think there's any way to phrase it that's not going to be felt as dismissive by those who have opposed what they fear will happen with this zoning bylaw change. I do wonder how that's going to impact district planning. I worry that city council may be expending a lot of their political capital to get this zoning bylaw over the line, given that the zoning bylaw doesn't actually do any of the huge transformative changes that we need district planning to do. It remains to be seen how it will go. I know that I will not speak at council for this one because, Mac, I have too much to do with three days of time. (laughs) Well, as you say, it's coming up on October 16th. They have a couple of additional days set aside, so you can register now if you want to go and speak at that public hearing. The city also on their website has a library of summaries and learnings about what the zoning changes could mean for your specific property. They've actually got quite a lot of materials about, you know, how this citywide rezoning is going to work. What is the process here? Lots of information. So there shouldn't be an excuse of, I didn't know how to get engaged in this. And there's still time to do that. And we'll include the links to those things in our show notes. There's time for that, but there's no more time left on this podcast, except for the rapid fire segment. In response to the UCP's push poll on the Alberta pension plan proposal, the NDP have released their own public consultation titled, quote, hey, but could you just not? While for now, the focus is on the drive to take Alberta's pension contributions out of the CPP, party staffers have noted that so far, could you just not has been an effective reply to everything Daniel Smith has done since assuming office what seems like 7,000 years ago. Not satisfied with just the video game, John Carmack has partnered with Richard Sutton to pioneer an artificial general intelligence by 2030. Carmack said, quote, We want Doom to apply to all of humanity, and I think we're on the right track. I realize now in writing that, the general population probably doesn't know that John Carmack made Doom. Does it? No, that, that's that's probably not general knowledge. Maybe not. For those of you confused about that joke, John Carmack is the guy who invented Doom, the game that everybody asks, but will it run Doom? Or is that Quake? I can't remember. Mac, this is going f- too far down the computing science rabbit hole. We've got to cut it all. Traffic in Toronto is set to grind to a halt later this year after Alberta Premier Daniel Smith indicated Alberta's intention to pull out of the federal transportation plan. Said the Alberta Premier, quote, Ottawa hasn't been giving us what we put in, and we think it's only fair that, given all Alberta has contributed to the country, that nine of the 18 lanes on the 401 belong to us. Well, that's it for this episode, but you can always get the latest on what's happening at City Council and everything else that's going on around the city by reading The Pulse, which is Taproot's daily news briefing. The Pulse tells you what you need to know every weekday morning, short, informative updates about municipal politics and coverage of business, tech, food, and much, much more. There's also some delightful features from time to time, such as a moment in history. And you can check all of that out and sign up for The Pulse for free at taprootedmonton.ca. Well, we'll be back next week. If you have anywhere that I should go on a field trip before then, uh, feel free to tweet me. Uh, Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.